Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Robert Buckingham, and on behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation and M Pavilion, I'd like to welcome you to this evening's talk um, by our special guest, Arik Chen. Um, of course, we acknowledge the Boonarong people as the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Um, as you know, M Pavilion was conceived by the Naomi Milgram Foundation as an annual temporary architect design pavilion by a uh, world leading architect. This one was designed by, Ar um, not Eric, <laughs> B. Joy Jane from Studio Mumbai. Um, and we see it as a new civic space for all of Melbourne to enjoy. Um, we'd like to thank um, all our partners for their support of M Pavilion's free public event program throughout its four months, uh, the City of Melbourne, the Victorian State Government uh, through Creative Victoria and the ANZ. We'd also like to welcome our friends from Deloitte and Arnold Bloch-Liebler here tonight. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing Eric. Eric is a special guest of ours. Um, his, uh, his visit to Australia has been made possible um, by support of the Australian Copyright Agency and the Australian Copyright Agency Cultural Fund. Um, he is the lead curator of uh, M Plus, lead curator in design and architecture. And tonight he's going to talk to us a little bit about his um, collecting policy and how he's establishing a new collection of design and architecture at um, Hong Kong and China's newest uh, museum of visual culture. So thank you, Eric. Great. Uh, oh. So thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Naomi and, and Robert, for, for having me here. It's, it's been a really, it's my first time in Australia, actually. I, don't know how that uh, how it's taken so long, but it's it's been a really wonderful few days, uh, very inspiring few days in in Melbourne. Uh, as Robert said, I'm uh, working at a new museum that's under construction in Hong Kong, and uh, they, uh, Robert and, and Naomi, uh, very kindly and generously offered to to have me come here and tell uh, you all a little bit about it. So I will um, just go ahead and do that. But I'll start off with um, a little context. Uh, we are. Uh, at, we're a museum of, of visual culture, as, 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 as we call it, and we're part of a, a larger project called the West Kowloon Cultural District. Some of you may have heard of it. Our, our former uh, CEO is, was Michael Lynch, who is an, uh, an Australian, former director, director of the Sydney Opera House. Uh, no longer there, but, um, but it's a, a, a very big project, uh, really, really well located uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, I, I don't know how familiar all, all of you are with the city, but uh, our site uh, in red there is right on Victoria Harbour. Uh, this is where the, uh, the HSBC building and the IMP Bank of China, that really iconic view of, of, of Hong Kong that, that many of you probably know. Um, and uh, we are just across from that uh, near the, uh, the, the Peninsula Hotel and, and uh, Tsim Chat Sui. Uh, it is a, sorry, maybe I'll just do it this way, yeah. So um, as I said, it's, it's a, a, a cultural district that uh, includes quite a number of facilities. Uh, you can see uh, there is a big park, and then uh, here's where M Plus will be. Uh, we have a Chinese opera house here, a number of performance halls, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's gonna be a new uh, building for the, for the Palace Museum, or for collections from the Palace Museum uh, in Beijing. 
uh, and we are now sort of working on the red buildings. So the red buildings are either completed uh, or currently under construction. Uh, the site is really, uh, really interesting because uh, not so long ago there, there was no site. Uh, this is a view of the West Cowland Cultural District as it would be uh, back when it was just, uh, just water. And you can see here it's a, a land uh, reclamation project, a, a very big one that arose from the construction of a, a train tunnel and, and a traffic tunnel. And here you see it in 1994, 1998, when Kowloon Station, the, uh, the, the train terminus, was, uh, was, was being built, or the, the train station. 2003, it's starting to kind of get, get developed all around there as things, happen to, uh, as things uh, tend to do in Hong Kong. And then 2012, and this is when I started at, at Hong Kong, I was uh, at, at M+. I was previously uh, living in Beijing. And uh, me and a few other colleagues arrived in Hong Kong in 2012, uh, very excited to take on this you know, new museum from scratch that was uh, going to be groundbreaking and, and all sorts of other things. Uh, and we, have, uh, uh, we were looking across the site, admiring uh, where M Plus was going to be, envisioning this wonderful project. And of course, we just sort of waited. Uh, and we waited. This is how it looked in 2013. This is how it looked in 2014. <laughs> And in case you're wondering, this is how the site looked in 2015 as well. But in 2016, uh, we had broken ground, uh, foundations uh, were dug, and uh, I can say uh, finally that uh, now in 2017, uh, the building construction is, is, is well underway, uh, as you can see in this shot just taken a few weeks ago. And here is the uh, building design uh, by Herzog and Demiron, the, the Swiss firm that uh, designed the Tate Modern, uh, co-designed the, the Bird's Nest in Beijing, among many other uh, well-known projects. Uh, it's a very big building, about 60,000 square meters or 650,000 square feet. Do you use square feet or, or meters here? Meters, 60,000 square meters, uh, of which about 12,000 is uh, display space. Uh, this is the main sort of gallery floor. These are sort of offices and, uh, uh, and, and other sort of uh, facilities, uh, conservation, storage, and so on. Um, very, uh, it's, the building's meant to be very sort of open and, and, and permeable to the park around it and the, and the district beyond. Uh, one interesting feature, I, I, I won't say too much about the building, but just to point out this one great um, move that Herzog and Demiron made, uh, we uh, have a, the airport express train runs directly underneath our site, uh, and that was sort of seen as a really big problem, like a big engineering challenge uh, to solve. But in their sort of brilliant uh, jujitsu sort of way, uh, Herzog and Demiron proposed uh, excavating around that tunnel uh, to create a, uh, what we call a, a found space for large-scale installations. So you can kind of see that here is the sort of step profile uh, of the train tunnel that will create this really big new space for, you know, for, for challenging artists and, and, and others to, uh, to, to create uh, probably mostly site-specific installations. More importantly, though, uh, it has always been the content. Uh, we've always said that the museum is sort of a tool. Uh, a, a museum is not a building. A museum is its content and uh, its relationship with its audiences. And so uh, we have been uh, very busy uh, during all these years of lack of activity on our uh, site. Uh, building up a permanent collection, uh, and that, is, that collection is really uh, defined by uh, the 20th century and 21st centuries, uh, visual culture, uh, as we call it, but that's sort of a catch-all term that we use to describe, uh, or an umbrella term for art, uh, design, and architecture, which is the area that uh, me and my team work, uh, look after, and, and moving image. Uh, importantly, uh, we want to sort of look at these disciplines um, on their own terms, but also in relationship to each other, the sort of fluidities and, uh, and, and, and dialogues uh, in, and, in and among them. 
Now we call ourselves a global museum from a Hong Kong Chinese Asian perspective. This is a very sort of highly reductive uh, concentric sort of circle, uh, a, a diagram to, uh, as a way of sort of showing that we are rooted where we are in the world, but we uh, are interested in the entire world uh, nonetheless. Uh, the reality is probably much, uh, much messier. Uh, Australia is important for us. We, we just haven't uh, uh, probably done as much as we, we ought to have, but, but, uh, but uh, I, I can certainly say that I've, I'm, I'm definitely inspired to do more now. And while we haven't had a building, uh, so far we've been uh, very active in, in programming. In some ways we, we've been functioning like a museum, just a museum that doesn't happen to have, uh, have a building. So if people can't come to us, we've been going to them. Uh, we have an amazing learning and interpretation team. Uh, among the things they've been doing is this roving, uh, the M plus rover we call it, which is a, a mobile uh, classroom slash gallery slash workshop space that's been going to schools and, and other public spaces throughout the city. We've done a series of 10, uh, we did a series of 10 uh, mobile and plus exhibitions in locations throughout Hong Kong. Here's, one of the, here's the first one uh, from 2012, uh, where we took over sort of empty storefronts, space, uh, empty storefronts and other spaces in uh, the Yamate neighborhood of Hong Kong with different installations and programs. <clears throat> I'll show you this because this was our first architecture uh, exhibition uh, in 2013, kind of showing uh, uh, the beginnings of our collection uh, along with uh, the, our, our, um, our, our museum building. We've done sort of we sort of, we've sort of tried to use the city, you know, as uh, as a stage, so to speak. This is a, a program of, of performance art uh, that we did in various locations, uh, both public and otherwise, uh, throughout Hong Kong uh, in 2015. And while we try and bring uh, the world to Hong Kong, we also bring Hong Kong out to the world. Uh, for the past two editions of the Venice Art Biennale, uh, we've uh, commissioned the Hong Kong Pavilion, uh, first in 2013 with uh, the artist Lee Kit, and uh, 2015 with uh, Zhang King Hua. So that's just sort of the, uh, the oh, sorry. And uh, we just a few months ago uh, inaugurated the M Plus Pavilion, not the M Pavilion, but the, uh, the M Plus Pavilion. Uh, the M in our name uh, stands for museum, by the way, not, not, not Melbourne. It's a museum plus, uh, more than a museum. And this is a, uh, a permanent structure on the West Kowloon site that, we're going to that we are using now uh, for exhibitions until our main building opens. And the second show that we did, which just closed Sunday, was our first design show called Shifting uh, Objectives. And this is, again, a little bit of a... Um, a teaser for our collection. We're, we're trying to sort of give people a sense of the contours uh, and various approaches that we're taking to historicizing um, and uh, narrating uh, design globally from our perspective in Asia, which is the topic of this talk. Um, and uh, I'm going to try and uh, give some examples of what we mean by that. Um, we are uh, uh, collecting architecture as well. That's a very a big part of uh, our, 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 um, our, our mandate. Uh, but I'm going to focus on, on design uh, just because this sort of show just closed and it's, it's all sort of fresh and, and, uh, and, and, and new. So I'm going to um, focus on three areas and I'll call them the canon uh, copying and neon cows and trying to uh, illustrate how we're approaching design from this, you know, quote unquote. And we realize the term Asian is problematic in, in, in all sorts of ways, but just, just, uh, just, 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 just let's just go with it for now. Um, uh, this is not how we organize shifting objectives, but I, I'm just sort of pulling these three, three threads out uh, to, to, to give you some, uh, some examples. So I'll start with uh, the canon. Now, we've, we've always said that we want to sort of uh, tell the lesser known narratives of design 
uh, in Asia, while also rethinking sort of well-known, maybe global narratives from our vantage point uh, in, uh, in the region. And the latter has a lot to do uh, with this notion of the canon uh, and revisiting uh, the canon. Because when you talk about design, just as an example, if you look at mid-20th century design, um, this is a, just an installation shot from a show at, at MoMA in 2012. Uh, you know, the, the story has always been, been dominated by sort of the European-American uh, 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 narrative. Uh, you see some, a, lot, a lot of Eames and Alto and so on and so forth. Uh, and fair enough. I mean, that's, that's where a lot of these ideas really, uh, really, really started and, 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 were, and, and wound up being highly influential uh, elsewhere. But if we think about sort of moving beyond, uh, beyond that, uh, where... Uh, design from other parts of the world that were really part of this conversation. So you can see uh, here uh, the, uh, the uh, butterfly stool by the Japanese designer Sori Yanagi. Uh, hidden in the corner here is, is uh, the Mirai stool by uh, Japanese female designer uh, uh, Reiko Tanabe. Uh, th these, sort of, uh, th th these sorts of practices were always uh, placed uh, more peripherally, sort of on uh, on the edges of the main uh, kind of discourse. And so for us, being a museum positioned somewhere else uh, in the world, uh, in Asia, uh, for us, the, the, the sort of uh, uh, the driver is, is, what, is what happens when you take what was once on the periphery and you uh, put it in the center. And so we've been doing, a ver been very uh, actively uh, building a collection of, of uh, Japanese modernist uh, design. And uh, surprisingly enough, it's, it's an area that's, that one feels like, uh, that, 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 that seems really well known and, and, and really well covered. Uh, but there's actually no museum in the world, including in Japan, uh, that has uh, really attempted to, as, as comprehensively as possible, tell the story of Japanese modernist uh, design. So this is, this, this is something that, uh, that is sort of shockingly uh, new. And, 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 and we're trying to, uh, to do that uh, by showing how Japanese designers, as part of a broader dialogue about uh, modernity and, and its relationship to, uh, to Japanese-ness, let's say, uh, created an entirely new uh, vocabulary of modernism uh, with you know works that that gave a new sort of graphic expression to uh, to uh, to post uh, po to post-war Japan as the country was rebuilding uh, after the devastation of World War II and was trying to present itself as a, a modern progressive you know uh, post-imperial um, player in the world and how. Things like you know plywood. I showed you an image of of of, of the plywood show at MoMA uh, uh, earlier. How how new te technologies like were newly widely available technologies like plywood uh, were being also used uh, in ways that uh, that uh, adapted to China, uh, Japanese uh, modes of 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 living and and, and aesthetics and, and traditions. Uh, there was of course a very long discussion going back to the beginning of the Meiji Restoration in 1868 about, um, about uh, Japan's relationship to, to modernism. And from that, there grew a whole body of, of, of discourse about the affinities between uh, the kind of modernist vocabulary and traditional uh, Japanese and craft. And you see that starting to, uh, to evolve here in works like this. And these are shots from the show. Uh, and across areas, I mean, uh, here's uh, Yanagi's uh, butterfly stool again, but but even things like the television set. How do you domesticate uh, this 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 new electronic product that was now available to a growing uh, middle class? You kind of encase it in this sort of high style Japanese residential architecture um, uh, type of, of of cabinetry, or uh, this uh, Kenmochi 
uh, incense burner, uh, sorry, ashtray, uh, inspired by traditional incense burners, the invention of the rice cooker, something we take for granted uh, today, the, the electric rice cooker, uh, but which changed, uh, changed lives around the world. I mean, uh, women, uh, especially women in, in Japan and across Asia, no longer had to spend hours every day kind of watching the, watching the pot. They just sort of pressed a button, boom, they're done and can do, uh, could do other things now. Now, we always try and uh, don't pay too much attention to this. This is more, uh, this is an, an, an overly complicated diagram to just make a point of how complicated things are. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's essentially a mapping out of, of one slice of, of, of Japanese post-war design that we've been looking at. This is not, the, this is not Japanese design overall. This is just, just one, one area that, that, um, that we've been uh, focusing on. But just, this is just to give you an idea of, of how we've tried to contextualize things um, in terms of social forces, uh, key events, and key figures. Uh, within a global context, you'll see Charlotte Perriand here. Um, her, she, in 1940-41, she was invited by the Japanese government to uh, go to Japan and, and, uh, and sort of give them advice on how to, to let, you know, improve their, uh, their products for export. And this proved to be a, a very, very important uh, moment in Japanese design uh, because not only did she inspire Japanese designers, but she was very much influenced by Japan, which then, and, and that influence stayed with her uh, throughout the rest of her, her career. But she was also uh, accompanied throughout this trip by young Sora Yanagi, the designer of the butterfly stool, who very much um, was, uh, was influenced by her uh, and wound up being one of the real, real pioneering figures of post-war Japanese design. But uh, this, these sort of networks uh, then kind of continue on. I mean, this is... Uh, uh, we, we try and show how, uh, how these, uh, these ideas move back and forth across, uh, across borders and, 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 and among these, the, these networks. This is uh, the 1937 share uh, in bamboo by Japanese designer uh, Kitokoro Ubunji, who was probably influenced by you know, the Finnish designer Alto, but then Perian, who uh, was in Japan when she was there, was influenced by him. She then uh, goes to Brazil, and this, is, this piece is from Brazil, uh, where, where she was in the 60s, incorporating uh, paper lanterns by the Japanese-American designer, uh, Isamu Noguchi. Perian was a former collaborator of Le Corbusier, who in our show here uh, is now in India, designing the city of, of Chandigarh uh, with, with his cousin Pierre Jean Array. Uh, Le Corbusier's protege, Doshi Balkrishna, uh, was, who was working for him in Paris, comes back to India to help him on his Indian projects. He designs this cabinet for Le Corbusier's Mill Owners Association building in Ahmedabad. Doshi stays in India, then becomes a very influential figure uh, in post-Indian, post-independence uh, post Indian architecture. Um, and the story goes on. Um, I didn't expect you to follow that, but that was just a way, again, of saying that these are these very complicated networks, global networks, uh, that we're trying to tr trace while focusing on uh, the narratives within, uh, within our region. I thought I would just throw this, this slide in um, because we're also revisiting uh, postmodern design. This is our little homage to uh, the Japanese postmodern designers, uh, Shiro Kuramata, Masanori uh, Umeda, and Shigeru Uchida, and also uh, Sotsis, who uh, was sort of the, 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 the figurehead of, of, of postmodern furniture uh, 
uh, or the postmodern movement in, in furniture, as, as epitomized by the Memphis group uh, in, in Milan in, in the 80s. Uh, we're trying to retrace the, uh, the story of, of POMO to reevaluate uh, reevaluate it uh, in a design context, but also we're doing that in architecture. And uh, after these few days in Melbourne, uh, I have to say we uh, definitely, we clearly <laughs> need to take a closer look uh, at, at Melbourne, given the, uh, the very interesting kind of takes on, on, on postmodernism uh, that have uh, emerged here. So all of this is maybe a little bit too academic uh, <laughs> and, and maybe a little boring, so let's move on to copying. Which, uh, which is another area that we're looking at. Uh, I think you can, pro I, I probably don't need to explain why as a museum in Hong Kong and, and China, copying is something of, of great interest to us and, and re-examining uh, copying. Uh, I'll maybe once again thank the Australian Copyright Agency for, <laughs> for having me here, and maybe I should now uh, preemptively apologize for what I'm, what I'm about to say, uh, because we are trying to uh, kind of get away from this uh, very blunt, a uh, very blunt, uh, almost moralistic way of looking at copying that, uh, uh, that, 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 that tends to be sort of uh, pervasive and, and really try to uh, see, th see it in a more nuanced uh, light. Uh, now, we are, I think all of you are <clears throat> really familiar with this sort of uh, phenomenon, uh, in, not just in China, but, uh, but in, in lots, of, uh, lots of different places, but uh, everything in China is sort of magnified. So, uh, so this is often associated with, with, with China, the sort of knocking off and, 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 and uh, ripping off of, of brands. But uh, I mean, we sort of find this as being incredibly, uh, almost, uh, almost creative in, 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 in an appropriative way. Uh, but uh, we are, also in a region in which you know the idea of, of, of imitation and copying does not have the same sorts of um, uh, associations as it might uh, elsewhere. Uh, Hong Kong is right across the border uh, from Shenzhen, which is a city that uh, all of you may have heard about. Uh, the sort of famous story of Shenzhen is that 30 years ago it was a fishing village of, of 30,000 people, 40,000 people, and now it's a, uh, a metropolis of, of 11 million. And it was where the sort of reform and opening up process uh, under Deng Xiaoping in China kind of be began. Uh, there's a there are huge industries of of uh, well huge manufacturing industries in Shenzhen, but also huge industries of, of copying. And uh, here you see uh, this now kind of famous Dauphin oil painting village, where uh, hundreds of, of painters sort of sit and, and, and copy uh, uh, paintings uh, for uh, for sale to I don't know various cruise ships and, <laughs> and hotels around the world, I guess. Uh, and it's really at such an enormous scale. Uh, this is a, a speed painting uh, competition uh, in, in, in Dauphin. Uh, but it's, but it thought, uh, Shenzhen also is, is, is particularly known for uh, its as the hub of China's electronics uh, industry. When you, uh, when you hear about sort of, um, you know, quote-unquote Apple smartphones and quote-unquote Samsung uh, tablets uh, be, uh, being sort of uh, being made and, and, and sold and spread all over the world. Uh, much of it, a huge percentage of that goes through Shenzhen and especially this, uh, this district, the, the Huachang Bay uh, electronics market. Now, I should say that uh, we are not condoning outright piracy and counterfeiting uh, <laughs> by any means, but what we are trying to do is, is really pose some questions about you know, what we mean by copying when we, uh, when, when we talk about copying. Be oh, uh, because, uh, 
because these systems of copying uh, are, 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 are more impactful than I think we, we, we realize in a kind of generative way. Um, here you see a whole bunch of, 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 of uh, hoverboards. Uh, Shenzhen became, I mean, it, it, it's amazing how quickly uh, these, these, these phenomena kind of happened in, in, in Shenzhen. Uh, the hoverboard was first introduced, I think, around 20, uh, 2013 or something like that, uh, 2014. And just overnight in Shenzhen, hundreds and hundreds of, of factories were making hoverboards of, of, of all shapes and sizes and spreading them all over the world. And, uh, and, and it's almost like a yearly, yearly cycle. I mean, in 2014, 2015, it was hoverboards. Uh, 2015, 2016, it was uh, virtual reality glasses. You, you would suddenly see them everywhere uh, in, in Shenzhen. Uh, this year, uh, or more recently, I've, I've been told, that I, though I haven't seen it uh, yet, the, uh, the, the hot product is a... Uh, a karaoke microphone, <laughs> which has a built-in in speaker, and, and apparently that's, that's, that's what you see everywhere now. And, uh, and these have a huge, uh, huge, huge impact on uh, systems of uh, production throughout the world. Uh, but again, they're, they're often sort of looked down upon, frowned upon as, as being copying, um, and we want to sort of question that, because uh, in some ways, this, this blunt uh, definition of copying that I mentioned uh, earlier uh, probably needs, needs some, uh, some revisiting. And I think uh, in the era of the Creative Commons and, and, uh, and, and open source and so on and so forth, I, I, I think we're, uh, we're, we're able to sort of think of, 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 of copying and cut and paste uh, slightly differently, uh, copying and copyright being really an, an invention of, of, of the industrial uh, revolution. And here I'm showing you, um, I should give you some background. Uh, in sort of traditional Chinese culture, there's, there's this custom of, of burning paper money uh, for your ancestors to, to provide for them in, in, in the afterlife. And in recent years, uh, with the onset of consumerism uh, in, in China, uh, you now have everything from paper smartphones and paper Ferraris to paper uh, designer handbags and so on and so forth that, that you burn, uh, again, for your, uh, for your deceased family members. Now, um, among these are uh, fashion goods, like branded fashion goods, like this, these, this sort of pseudo Gucci, Gucci-esque handbag and shoes that you see here. And last year, um, there's a bit of a kerfuffle because Gucci actually sent very threatening letters to these mom and pop shops uh, selling uh, these products. Uh, this got into the media and there was a, a, a very vocal uh, response. I, I think everyone thought that Gucci had maybe gone a little bit too far because, I mean, really, this is not threatening their, uh, their business. Uh, no one's going to confuse these, this Gucci handbag for the real thing. And you know, to sort of terrify these these poor you know <laughs> these poor shop owners uh, seemed a bit much, and, and, and sure enough, Gucci backed uh, backtracked and, and sort of apologized. But I think we can also ask: I mean, who's copying who, and haven't hasn't everyone been copying or in, been influenced by everyone uh, throughout? throughout the history of time. And I, I, I love this story uh, from 2014, uh, where students uh, in Shenzhen uh, noticed an uncanny resemblance between their school uniforms and a new polo in one of Prada's uh, 2014 uh, collections and promptly accused Prada of, <laughs> of knocking off their school uniforms. And, uh, and, and, so, and thus the tables were, were turned. Now, um, in our show, though, we, we 
try to sort of uh, examine how uh, these systems of rooted in copying, because you can also make the argument, I mean, in recent years, China has been labeled the, the big copier. Uh, but before that, it was sort of Taiwan and Hong Kong and Korea. Before that, Japan was the big cop copier. Uh, I've, I've seen lots of uh, uh, writings from, from the early 20th century with, uh, with, uh, by, uh, about the sort of British lamenting the Americans ripping them off and you know, the, 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 the Germans being complaining about the, the, the French and the French complaining about the Italians and so on and so forth. This is not a Chinese or Asian phenomenon. It has more to do probably with the, uh, the point of industrial and economic development that a place is, is, is at. Uh, but because we're in China uh, at this moment, we're sort of at, uh, at the right point to really examine how these sort of phenomena uh, rooted in copying then uh, give rise to different levels of innovation and, and, and different types of, 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 of creativity. So uh, in this little island, we, have, we, we call it our, our, our Shenzhen uh, altar. We, we, we try to, uh, to examine that, uh, beginning with these. Now, uh, you, you know those sort of holographic stickers that, that brands put on their products sometimes just you know, to, to verify that this is the, the real thing? Well, in Shenzhen, you can buy those stickers anywhere. Uh, and and, and these, these in particular I, I love because it just says original. So, I mean, <laughs> anything becomes uh, an original depending on you know, who's putting it on, on, on what. And it really, uh, I, I think, uh, speaks a lot to our... To, to sort of authorship, uh, notions of, of, of authorship and originality. And, and, you know, and this goes back to Duchamp signing, uh, signing a urinal and, and, and calling it art. This, this is not a new, uh, new phenomenon, though, though in a different context, of course. But then uh, we sort of also, uh, Shenzhen is especially known for, for its uh, mobile phones. And, um, and, it's, uh, and, and these phones kind of arrive, uh, come out of this really vast ecosystem of parts suppliers and, uh, and, and manufacturers and factories that, that, that just sort of um, uh, are able to, 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 to really work the supply chain and, 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 and pull things together. And about 10 years ago, uh, a, a, a type of phone began appearing uh, in Shenzhen that, had, uh, that was very in, in, inexpensive, probably about... 10 US dollars uh, or, or so, uh, and it had extra large buttons, and it was designed specifically for the elderly and visually impaired. Now, you know, Apple and Samsung weren't, weren't catering to, to this market. It was this uh, copy ecosystem uh, in Shenzhen that was able to make things quickly, affordably, and in smaller batches in order to satisfy the needs of underserved uh, demographics. Now, in the show, we, um, this, this, these are not photos from the show. The, 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 the show was much neater. These, these are a bit crooked. Sorry about that. But, uh, but in the show, we had these more recent versions of the kind of big button uh, mobile phones. Um, I love the SOS panic button. Uh, but here, uh, you can see an FM antenna radio has been incorporated. Uh, you can't see it here, but there's also an LED, a small built-in LED flashlight. And uh, once again, it's, it, it shows how through very low-tech means you're able to kind of cobble together different features very affordably. Uh, these are about, about $10, uh, 10, 10 US dollars, 10, 12 US dollars, uh, in a way that serves people who aren't, aren't being served. And especially in, China, in rural, area, rural areas of China, of China, the elderly still rely on their FM uh, antenna radios uh, and so on. So, so these, these, these are quite, quite useful. Uh, 
we are, we're also able to just catch this little mini trend of the uh, card phone. Now you can't really tell from these from from this image, but these are uh, mobile phones that are the size of credit cards. Really incredible examples of miniaturization to begin with, and they started appearing uh, just about two years ago in 2014. And so we just got a few examples to show how uh, how quickly they sort of spread in different uh, different iterations, whether different button styles or colors or a little keychain version. Uh, there's a touchscreen version now even. I mean, this is really a tiny, tiny phone. It's, it's, it's incredible. And a version, if you can tell, that's uh, embedded in the back of a smartphone uh, case. So you can have two phones uh, at once. Now, the, the sort of official explanation for this is that a lot of migrant workers uh, in China sort of need, want to keep both both numbers, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of home village uh, phones and numbers uh, in, in the cities that, that they migrate migrate to, and this this is a way of of letting them conveniently keep both um, without without getting a dual SIM card uh, phone. But the unofficial you know uh, explanation is the ones for your mistress and ones for your wife, but uh, but who knows? So uh, taking. Uh, I mean, some things are just kind of really, uh, uh, really fascinating and bizarre in ways that I think just say a lot about uh, our time. We have no idea uh, who, who made this. I, I just sort of saw this at the market and, and, and found it so compelling uh, that we needed to have it. It's a miniature telescope, and as you uh, can see, there's a smartphone cover. Uh, so the idea is you put your smartphone, uh, snap, that, snap the smartphone in, uh, and then you can zoom in and record uh, whatever it is uh, that you want. And, and it's just an incredible, I think, very, very uh, I mean, it's almost like a, a conceptual <laughs> art. I mean, it says a lot about the, the, role, the growing role of surveillance uh, in, in society and the centrality of the smartphone uh, in this sort of hyper -document, age of hyper-documentation that, uh, that, that we're now living in. On another note, I mean, you have sort of uh, capital D designers, high designers like uh, Michael Young, a very well-known uh, British designer who has been living in Hong Kong for the past 10 years in order to be closer to the manufacturing uh, in the Pearl River Delta region uh, in, in Shenzhen and, and the surrounding area. Michael's a very hardcore industrial designer, uh, an industrial designer's industrial designer. And he, uh, for this really beautiful uh, extruded fin lamp, he worked with a a factory in, uh, near Shenzhen, uh, in the city of Dongguan, that uh, normally makes uh, computer heat sinks, like a very unglamorous sort of uh, very technical co uh, component. And he worked with them to retool their, their machines to create uh, this really beautiful, uh, beautiful piece. And then on the sort of furthest end of the uh, opposite end of the spectrum from the sort of copy copies um, is the DJI, uh, DJI Phantom Drone. Uh, this is probably the the first commercially successful mass-produced uh, consumer drone and it's hard to uh, it's sort of almost shocking to to realize this but it, this came out only in 2013 I mean before this uh, drones were mostly either military or sort of DIY uh, something that DIY enthusiasts and, and, and hobbyists uh, made and uh, this this drone made the that's sorry. This yeah. This product made the drone uh, a consumer product widely available uh, to a broad audience for the first time. Uh, and as we all know, that's it's sort of changing uh, changing the, the the world as as we know it. And this was uh, developed and made by a Shenzhen company uh, in Shenzhen, uh, and it's sort of one of those bo uh, bonafide uh, bonafide sort of uh, 
in, uh, innovations that still comes out of this sort of system that was once known only for, uh, for copying and, and cheap knockoffs. So I've talked about the canon and copying, and then finally I'll talk about neon cows because um, you know, we are uh, building a collection of design and architecture, but it's within the context of a visual culture museum. And uh, we've always, we, we spent many, many hours discussing what, what visual culture means. Um, I, I think there, there probably is no real, uh, real answer. If, if you ask 20 people what visual culture means, you'll get 20 different answers. Uh, but suffice it to say, I think that kind of gives us a little bit of, of encouragement to, to think outside uh, sort of con the conventional criteria or parameters of design. So when I first uh, arrived, soon after I first arrived at M+, uh, we, uh, a colleague of mine uh, read an article in, the, uh, in one, of, one of the local papers about how this iconic neon sign uh, from 1978 was being ordered down by the buildings department. Now, uh, whether or not you've been to Hong Kong, uh, I, I assume you all have at least some image of Hong Kong in your mind, and that image likely is sort of filled with, with neon signs and, 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 and just layers and layers of this, this cacophony um, of, of, of neon. Now, uh, when we heard that this was, was being ordered down by the buildings department, uh, we thought, well, maybe we ought to take it. Uh, we were immediately drawn to it. Uh, we weren't really sure why, but it, it just seemed like a no-brainer a no to us. I mean, as a museum of visual culture in Hong Kong, neon seems like visual culture, right? And it's Hong Kong, so, so, so let's do it. Uh, but, and uh, it was happening at a time when, uh, when neon signs were disappearing very rapidly from the cityscape. Um, uh, you see here an image of uh, Nathan Road in, in, in Simcha Tsui from, from 1960, just sort of bedazzled, uh, a, a street bedazzled by neon. And then you see that same view uh, from 2014, and you can see that uh, the neon's almost all gone. And in fact, if you come to Hong Kong now uh, and pay attention, there's really uh, very, very little neon left. And, and, and this has all been coming down just in, in, in the past few years. So we decided, you know, let's 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 take a closer look at this. And so we launched, uh, uh, conveniently for a museum without a building, we decided to do an online uh, explore the sort of the, the virtual realm with an online exhibition uh, called NeonSigns.hk. And we said, can we uh, look at neon from uh, all sorts of different uh, perspectives, you know, as a multidisciplinary museum? Uh, so we had uh, essays, slideshows, uh, timelines, videos that looked at neon as, as typography, uh, as, 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 part, as, as an element of the urban landscape, as a marriage between craft and industry, um, as a cinematic device, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, we had videos that showed the making of, of, of neon signs, which was, uh, it was a very popular, um, uh, popular video, and that shows really the, uh, the craft of it, uh, something that I think we, we often uh, take for granted. Uh, we discovered these amazing neon sketches, uh, these sketches for, uh, for making these neon signs, which are just these beautiful drawings uh, in and of themselves, but also uh, show uh, the process of, of making and, again, reinforcing the notion that uh, neon signs are actually uh, an act of, of, of design. I mean, they, these are all conscious decisions uh, being made. Uh, we commissioned, uh, commissioned artists and photographers and, and, and others to explore uh, neon. Uh, this is uh, a photography series by uh, Wing Sha, who's a photographer who got a start with uh, Wang Kar Wai, 
Uh, and uh, he, he went and found people who lived and worked uh, behind or below neon signs and, and, and took their portraits and, and, and kind of got their, uh, did short interviews with them. We, we, we noticed a, a very stark generational gap. Here's uh, an older man who's sort of a bit grumpy about neon signs. I mean, who cares? Uh, who likes old things? Uh, contrasted with this young, uh, young couple who... Uh, who are who are really quite fond of the the, the neon sign, the, the neon lights that they live, uh, that that they live behind. And then, uh, because we just we had made the decision to collect neon signs and they were disappearing, we thought, uh, let's try and figure out how many are left and where they are. Uh, we were not equipped to do that ourselves, to, uh, to kind of uh, archive uh, the remaining neon signs in Hong Kong uh, in a way that could also help us keep an eye on them. So if they had to come down, uh, we, we, we could try and uh, uh, save them uh, for the collection. So we thought, let's you know, ask the public to, to help us. So we created this sort of crowdsourcing element uh, to the site where we invited people to uh, snap photos of, of, of neon signs that, that, that caught their eye, and, and, and it was all, all mapped uh, to create a, a, a neon map that doubled as a kind of record of, of the neon signs left at this point in time in 2014. Uh, we got a great response, uh, over 4,000 submissions, which, was, which went well beyond uh, what, what we expected. And uh, we have since then uh, taken down the Sammy's Kitchen uh, neon cow, as well as uh, five other neon signs uh, that are um, that have been ordered down by the by uh, by the government. We 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 would we never we have a policy sort of of not uh, seeking out neon signs to take down. But if, if if there are some that we know are coming down anyway, uh, we'll we'll try to save them when when, when we can. And um, that has really I think been a very uh, a very sort of fun uh, and, and also meaningful side of, of, of our collection that we were also very, um, very happy to highlight in our show, Shifting Objectives, where we showed uh, some of the, uh, the really beautiful neon sign sketches. So um, that's the end of my talk. I'm, I'm happy to take questions uh, or, yeah. <laughs> or I can just talk some more. <laughs> Yes. Very uh, famous um, neon sign from Melbourne called Skipping Girl Vinegar. Okay. Um, I think it had to be taken down recently. I'm not sure if anyone in the crowd actually knows what happened to it, but it's been restored and put back, has it? Oh, okay, cool. It's been saved. But, um, yeah, yeah, I'd be interested in knowing if you're um, potentially taking uh, submissions from other cities, <laughs> if they've got neon signs which are potentially going to die too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we've, we've really thought about that and kind of struggled with it. Um, and to be very honest, I, I, I think we're probably going to limit ourselves to Hong Kong neon signs, and it's, it's really for practical, <laughs> for, for practical reasons. But hopefully, I mean, I think the fact that we're collecting neon signs in Hong Kong, um, it, 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 this, this effort got, got a lot of uh, media attention internationally. I mean, um, we've got, uh, I think, I think at this point, close to 300,000 unique visitors to the site, 40% um, of which were from, from outside of, of, of Hong Kong. So, I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, hopefully other people will start coming up with this idea <laughs> as, 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 as well. I mean, hopefully we can, uh, we can act as a bit of a prompt uh, for, for other museums 
to be looking at this. I think there's a woman from the Melbourne Museum here. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to put you on the spot. But... Thanks for the talk. Uh, just got one question. I'm actually from Hong Kong. So um, from an urban development perspective, um, as you would know, um, Leon side in Hong Kong has been a bit controversial given the light pollution issue associated with it. And you've shown um, an elderly um, living in one of those buildings there. Um, how do you manage the tension created with uh, with this topic, especially among the local citizens. I mean, it's a urban development issues, but you highlighted that issue in the context of art, and obviously your audience is not just international visitors. So how do you find that? Has that been a problem for you, and, and also how we, do you relate to that? We are, I mean, we're, we're, Hong Kong has a very healthy culture of criticism, and, uh, and, and so we're, we're always really well aware of, 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 of all, the, all the potential uh, pitfalls. And, and, and oddly enough, we actually really anticipated uh, a lot of criticism uh, along the lines of, of what you're talking about. We, we thought there would be um, a, lot of, a lot of people uh, criticizing us for, you know, uh, ennobling this, this horrible source of light pollution and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in fact, the response was was completely uh, completely different. Uh, the, the the response among Hong Kongers uh, was overwhelmingly uh, positive. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many uh, how many uh, how much feedback we got from people from from all sectors of, of society uh, uh, thanking us for for doing this this project and 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 uh, and uh, encouraging the, the appreciation for uh, this sort of you know fast dying aspect of of, of Hong Kong's. Uh, heritage. I mean, if, 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 if anything, the criticism was probably more directed towards uh, go government policy, which has been very actively working towards uh, eliminating neon signs from the streets, uh, streetscape. But, but we were totally uh, prepared for the light pollution uh, criticism. And I mean, we're, we're not encouraging light pollution with, <laughs> by, by, by collecting ne uh, neon signs. It's, it's, a, yeah, it's an argument sort of beyond, beyond our remit. Anything else? Yeah, sorry. As an arts organisation, do you think you can plan for that type of community engagement, or does it happen by accident, or be you know you stumble upon something? Yeah. Um, I, th I think you can have a sense of, of, of what you're doing and the possible uh, response to it. But uh, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you asked that question because, you know, when, when I started at, at, at M Plus four, four years ago, um, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, skepticism about the project. In fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of outright hostility against the project. And I, I, I won't go, it's a really very long story that goes back tw 20 years. And, um, and fair enough. I mean, the, the, this, the West Kowloon project has had a lot of uh, bumps along the road and, and, and controversies and, 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 and frankly, missteps. Uh, but 
but when when we started w really actively with with M plus, we were sort of still dealing with uh, with that baggage, uh, and we had, uh, and again, it, it, it was understandable the, the the criticism because at that point we were still a total abstraction. You know, we had no building or building design. We'd done almost no programming. We hadn't even started collecting. No, no one really knew what we were doing, so they could sort of project whatever they wanted um, onto us. But one thing that was that kept that was constantly being sort of thrown at us was. Uh, what you're doing is something that n no one in Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong people don't care about. They're not interested. This is just, just going to be a very expensive white elephant. You have no audience, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, first of all, I mean, I, I, one thing I've learned uh, through this process is uh, you have to constantly be a little bit skeptical as well about people who claim to speak for the Hong Kong public. I mean, these these are people who, who often have their own, uh, own agendas and, and, you know, you can't sort of uh, paint an entire citizenry uh, of a city with, you know, in, 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 with, 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 with one, 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 uh, one brush. But what, we, what we've learned throughout doing what we've been doing, which is these exhibitions and, and learning and interpretation programs and outreach and so on and so forth, is that we do have an audience. You know, it's it's. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think you don't want to underestimate uh, your potential audience by assuming that they won't be interested or they, they won't get it. Uh, you have to just sh show them what you're doing, explain it to them, and I, I think people are uh, much more inherently curious than I think uh, they're often given, uh, give, given credit for. So uh, neon signs, we did have some sense that uh, people would be, that there would be some, uh, some interest, but we, we, we didn't expect as much uh, interest as as there was, and, and we took that as a very uh, an encouraging sign. That's Naomi. Oh, hi. Just sorry. <laughs> um, read in the paper a couple of years ago um, that the legislature was blocking any further funding to the M Plus Museum. How does has it that um, how has that affected your ability to build a collection, yeah. and has that turned something that you know should have been a national gallery into something that's quite municipal? Yeah. Well. Yes, there was a, um, a a big delay in the legislature legislature uh, legislative council. Oh, sorry, I was just going to show you um, two of those years where there, our site didn't change, and we we're sort of sitting around just watching it, uh, watching nothing happen, uh, were because of, of 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 exactly this this issue that uh, that this gentleman uh, brings up. And no, it didn't uh, affect our collecting uh, at all, other than giving us more time to uh, to build the collection. Um, and that's because the money uh, and budget for M plus was set aside uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, the world was a very different place 10 years ago, and, and Hong Kong was a very different place uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I, 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 I have to say, I, I think if, if M plus was proposed now, or even two or three, four, five years ago, uh, there's no way uh, it would happen. Uh, we, the, the, the idea would be killed b b before it, it even had a chance because of the current political climate in Hong Kong. Um, uh, but it's because the money was set aside and earmarked before that, 10 years ago, that uh, we've actually been, been able to, uh, to, to go full steam ahead. Uh, and in, in that sense, I think we're in some ways, when M Plus opens uh, in, in 2019, it will have been a kind of a, an accident of history, but 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 hopefully a a, a, a very happy one. Thank you, Eric. That was very interesting to hear about M Plus. Can you tell me what are the projects that you're looking at for the next three years until you do actually have a 
a building? Yeah, so we uh, we have this this pavilion now that uh, that opened a few months ago, uh, and we'll continue doing exhibitions there. So our next one opening uh, in March is on uh, Hong Kong popular culture of the 1980s and 90s as a uh, as a space for gender experimentation, <laughs> which is going to be a new take on Hong Kong popular culture, and and, and we're we're really. Uh, it's also what, what my colleague who's, who's curating it, Tina Pan, calls our, our, our gay show. <laughs> but uh, then after that is an installation of Canton Express, which, is a, which was a, a donation given to us of a very important seminal installation of contemporary Chinese art from the Guangzhou Triennale in 2005. We have a show uh, revisiting ink, ink art uh, and abstraction. Uh, and then uh, it'll sort of keep, uh, keep going from there. We're also doing lots of talks and workshops. We're, we're planning a big IMP symposium um, later this year, that'll be a collaboration with us, uh, between us and Hong Kong U and the Graduate School of Design at, at, at Harvard. So, uh, so we're, we're uh, going to keep, keep going, yeah. And you did receive a gift of a collection, didn't you? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, we, uh, in 2014, we received a donation of over uh, 1,400 works of contemporary Chinese art from the late 70s till now by the Swiss collector Uli Sig who was sort of an old China hand uh, and who had assembled over the past 30, 40 years uh, arguably the most uh, authoritative uh, uh, collection of contemporary Chinese art that really tells, tells a story from, from essentially the beginning. And, and so he donated, uh, we, we bought 30 works, but then he, do, he donated 1,400 and, and, and that's been a really, uh, that was a really big boon for us. And will that be your opening show? That will be part of the opening show. Uh, but definitely not, uh, not, 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 not all of it. I mean, we, we are uh, really, uh, you know, we, we're, we're, we're quite serious about being a, a multidisciplinary visual culture museum that, that is transnational and, 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 uh, and, evil, and even global. So while the SIG collection is really a huge, uh, a huge anchor for us, it's, it's, it's really just one part of the story. Hi, Eric. I just wanted to say it's great to have you here in Melbourne. Um, I've got a question regarding um, some of the social art practice and design that came out of the Umbrella Revolution yeah. and whether you have collected any of that and whether you can take the institutional risk to collect it in the first place. Yeah, uh, this is something that we've, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about and we, we even did a uh, a, a workshop uh, where we invited sort of speakers from all over the world and, and we did a public talk uh, exactly about this, uh, this issue. Uh, we, we've been looking very uh, closely at umbrella move, movement or uh, works that, that came out of the uh, umbrella movement. Um, we uh, have been taking it very seriously and we uh, are definitely, I would say that we are almost definitely planning to acquire works from that. Uh, but I'll be honest, uh, it's a matter of timing. Yeah, I mean, I'd, 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 I'd be lying through my teeth if I said uh, that there were no political considerations uh, involved. Um, they haven't stopped us yet, uh, but, but uh, I, I think we're waiting, we're waiting for a better moment. Um, so uh, in 2014, oh gosh, uh, yeah, 14, uh, September, 
long story short, uh, there, there's been a big debate over uh, universal suffrage uh, in, in Hong Kong. It was kind of guaranteed under the, the agreement between uh, Britain and China that, that, that resulted in, in the handover. But how you define suffrage uh, has been a matter of, of debate. Um, there was a plan to put in place uh, universal suffrage, uh, which would be you know, one person, one vote. But uh, the plan was uh, all, the, all the candidates for the chief executive, the, the number one official in, in Hong Kong, all the candidates had to be vetted by Beijing. Uh, this, was, this made uh, the sort of pan-democratic camp, which is uh, the sort of non-pro-establishment camp, uh, a little bit upset. Uh, and uh, there were, as a result, uh, protests that began in September of 2014 that, that shut down um, large swaths of, of, of Hong Kong's uh, central districts uh, uh, with protesters that sort of occupied uh, those spaces for, I think it lasted for about 79 days. Now, it was notable in Hong Kong as a sort of outpouring of, of creative expression. You know, you had a lot of uh, protest art and, and um, uh, really kind of novel urban interventions, you know, that, that, that sort of transform these, these once busy thoroughfares into kind of activist villages. And uh, there are also great posters and graphic designs, as, as you can imagine. And, and, and these are all things that, um, uh, and, and really uh, since that time, it has been a, a, a big question uh, whether or not the museums in Hong Kong would, uh, would, would collect that, some of that material. Now, I mean, in other parts, in, you know, in other cities, I mean, this would so not be, <laughs> so not be uh, an issue. I mean, the, the V&A uh, has been collecting protest art, you know, protest design, you know, forever. Uh, MoMA has collected, in New York, has collected things from the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, but maybe this is another sort of, uh, from an Asian perspective, <laughs> where, uh, where, where, where this is a much more sensitive topic. Anything else? Well, well, I think we're at about. Are are we at? Uh, yeah. So, if there are no other questions, really, uh, thanks for coming and, and, and listening to me, and uh, please come to come visit us uh, in Hong Kong at, at the pavilion. Yeah.